Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank Show. My name is Abhishek. Our guest today is Annie Lowry, who writes for The Atlantic on politics and economic policy. But her recent tweet also suggests that she's working on what sounds like a fun piece around folks who've got their tattoos removed. Today, Annie joins me to talk about her fascinating book, Give People Money, which has won many accolades. It was shortlisted for the 2018 Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. Thank you so much, Annie, for agreeing to do this. Thank you for having me. And your book's title, uh, for those who don't know the entire one, it says, Give People Money, How a Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work and Remake the World. Now, the first yes. response to the subhead would be, yeah, right. Give people money. What what does that even mean? And, and what is universal basic income to start with? Absolutely. So it's a, yes, it is a it is a very grandiose title, which I feel like the publisher always, you know, I remember just being even myself just being like, whoa, 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 no place has one of these really. Uh, they're sort of versions of UBI. But the idea with a universal basic income is that everybody, so it's universal, everybody in a community receives an amount of money uh, from the government or from somebody else. Uh, it is basic in the sense that it covers basic cost of living. So the amount that gets talked about in the United States is usually $1,000 a month, which is not really enough to live on, especially not in a big city, but it does cover quite a bit. Social security payments, which are what goes to almost all U.S. seniors, are generally around $1,000 a month or a little bit more than that now. The money is unrestricted, so... You could use it for whatever you needed to, and it comes indefinitely. So once you start getting it, it never gets taken away. Those are two other elements of it um, that are sort of dissimilar from other kind of social welfare programs in the U.S. or in other countries. And as uh, concepts go, would you agree that it is among the most misunderstood ones in that uh, folks who oppose it do talk about, hey, there's no free lunch, nothing comes out of nothing, you need to work hard to earn your dough. It's, it's not exactly that. It's barely enough to for you to have a roof over your head and enough for you to breathe and live so that you can go out and get yourself a job. That's the other argument. So how do you you know, get around explaining this? Absolutely. So yeah, I think there's a, a bunch of common misconceptions. One, as you point out, is that people will stop working. We actually have evidence on this. This is generally not true. And where you see reductions in work effort, which is the term that economists use, it's usually because people take more time at home when they have little children, or they retire early, or they stay in school longer, or in between jobs, they'll take a little bit longer to find a new job, which is not a bad thing, because that improves usually the quality of the match. So they find maybe a better job by taking another extra couple of weeks. There's a lot of misconceptions, right? Uh, one is that this is somehow communist. It's really not. It's quite capitalist, right? These people are taking the money and spending it in a capitalist <laughs> economy. There's no seizure right. of the, the production here. So that's, that's a really big one. And then, you know, the idea of getting something for nothing, it's an interesting thought. But the truth is that Everybody gets payments from the government and everybody pays into the government in some way or another. And instead of thinking about, you know, people at an individual moment, I always like to think of people across the lifespan. So we are really comfortable with the government, quote unquote, supporting 
children and seniors. And the government actually does a lot of support of people in the middle of life too in the US and in high income countries and also in middle income and low income countries. But there's nothing to say that forms of support in the middle of life would somehow sort of radically change the fabric of when people are working or what they're doing. It's misunderstood, which is interesting also, because again, it, it doesn't really exist anywhere. I think that we've gotten a lot closer to it, but it's, you know, there's no country you can point out that sort of does this. And you said that it is a, indeed a capitalist idea. And one might also look at it not as an expense, but an investment, because the guys who would be given just about enough money so that they are, don't live on the street, get spat at. So at least they can get up, find themselves a job, earn, spend the money back in the economy, where obviously the whole cycle then is, is self-fulfilling. Uh, and what, what about those who talk about, you know, if there's free money, you know, you might spend it on drugs, on alcohol. You write a little bit about in your book as well about the, uh, you know, the prescription drugs in the U.S., which is a big yeah. uh, problem where folks can uh, overdose on those. Is that argument already been debunked by whatever experiments have been run, whether in rich or poor countries? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a lot of evidence on this. A lot of studies from a lot of different countries have shown that spending goes up when people start getting more cash like this. And spending tends to go up fairly proportionately to what people were spending on before. And that generally means that people, especially lower income people, spend more on basic, what we might think of as basic necessities. So energy costs, food uh, transportation, gas, utilities, maybe clothing, that kind of thing. Study after study has shown that if vice spending, as it's known, goes up, it only kind of goes up because, you know, everything else is going up. It doesn't go up disproportionately. And in a lot of cases, it doesn't go up at all. People don't tend to spend the money on things like junk food, cigarettes, drugs, whatever else it might be. So it's really hard to convince people that folks won't misspend the money or fritter it away. And surely some do. And so my kind of question is, who cares, right? A little bit, like, why is it such a horrible idea? Why do we judge the idea of if people were getting this cash and were spending it in a way that we didn't approve of societally? Why do we care about that more for a UBI than we do with like a lot of tax credits or other payments? What are you getting in return for that increase in vice spending on lotto tickets or whatever else it might be, because if you're eradicating poverty, that doesn't strike me as a bad trade. But it's really hard, you know, especially in the United States and in some other countries, there's a lot of consternation about poverty, right? There's the belief that people are poor because they choose to be poor and they make bad choices. That's not true in some other countries. So notably in Europe, it's a lot less true. I think uh, the racial history in the United States um, and the sort of myth of of kind of like certain types of people, especially Black Americans being lazy, is really prevalent in very low income countries. I actually think this is easier because like everybody is poor or, you know, 50 percent of people in a given place will be poor. And it's pretty clear that that's just an accident of birth. That's not something that they chose. But it's a really thorny question and one that constantly comes up. And the, the only place where uh, I think it's it's in your book uh, where you talk about Peru, where uh, there was an imperceptible rise in folks spending money on chocolates, sweets and meals at restaurants because they were getting that 
cash. And that's a good thing because they could barely afford any of those. That's the the extent of frittering the money away. Yeah, just imagine some Peruvian kids get a couple more pieces of chocolate, right? Like that's not, there's a lot of problems on earth, but that's not one of them. That's not one of them. You know, there's this constant debate in the United States about people using food stamps on like soda and candy and cake. And it's always like, I don't, what if that's a kid who's getting some treats at a birthday party, right? Or like graduated from fifth grade and is getting something. We can chill out about that and sort of say that, yeah, like that's not necessarily a bad thing if people people get some things that they enjoy. Chocolate strikes me as a very, very um, wholesome treat, right? Like yes. um, this is not a huge increase in spending <laughs> on like hard liquor, right? right? Like small increases in spending on chocolate and a meal in a restaurant, which means that maybe the parents don't have to cook. Like, yeah, this is all good stuff, I think. <laughs> and for this book, uh, you, I think in one of your podcasts, you say that for a policy reporter who writes mainly behind her desk, it was good fun for you to go report and how you reported from... Th- yeah. From multiple countries. Let's let's start with Kenya. How was that experience and where did you go? It was wonderful. Uh, so I went twice, actually, um, about a month apart between the trips. And I was there for quite a bit of time. Uh, and I went um, to a city that is near Lake Victoria called Kisumu. What's kind of interesting about Kisumu is that a lot of research done by Western funded and in some cases, straightforwardly Western researchers happens in Kisumu Um, for reasons that I don't completely understand. There's just like a little bit of a research hub, but there's a number of villages around Lake Victoria, around this area that are very, very low income. So Kenya is a middle income country, right? Has quite a bit of industrial capacity, a huge tourism industry, some very big, important cities, you know, like fishing is really important to the economy, a number of things, right? So Kenya is not a really poor country, but it is a country that has some poor, lots of poor people in it, including people without indoor plumbing, without electricity, without meaningful access to healthcare. And one kind of interesting thing about Kenya is that very low income families pay school fees. Um, this is just the way the education system is set up there is that you pay for your kids to go to school and sometimes those fees will get waived or paid by other people. But that's a major cost, which is not true in other countries where um, schooling might be free. And so uh, I went there and um, it was because this uh, nonprofit Give Directly was giving money to all of the residents of a village, either in a lump sum or as a kind of UBI, so small payments made monthly for years on end um, and got to see that happen, which was great. And Kenya, I loved going to Kenya. The part of Kenya I was in, interestingly, was like the ancestral home of Barack Obama. And so everything everything where I was was named like Barack Obama Elementary School and like this Barack Obama tire business. And, you know, I do reporting in order to travel sometimes. And one thing that I really like about traveling to report is that you really get to talk to normal people and see things that you wouldn't normally see if you were a tourist and go places that you might never go. So that was a really good example that just at a personal level. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and when, when you talk to those people, uh, you've, you've got some interesting stuff in the book. Children were 42% less likely to go without food for a whole day because they started getting that money and uh, domestic yep. violence went down. Cortisol, the hormone, which is a biomarker for stress, that too went down because they were given just about enough money, uh, which they didn't waste, but they spent on cows, goats, so that they could you know, go and uh, expand their business. There are these small success stories that you try to uncover there. Is Why is it that other countries don't seem to see this as a low-hanging fruit and try it out? Is it for lack of intent or is it too simple? 
to be implemented uh, as an idea? It's a great question. And a number of countries do conditional cash transfers. So they don't do UBI, but they do do conditional cash transfers where usually the the arrangement is if you enroll your kids in school and get them vaccinated, you'll get some small cash payments. It's kind of like a, a child allowance usually. And these programs are really big. They started in the 1990s in Mexico and in Brazil, and they've become pretty popular in middle-income countries with a lot of low-income folks in them. Again, your Mexico, your Brazil, that's not South Sudan, right? That's not like the poorest of the poor places. These are governments with a lot of capacity, plenty of bureaucrats, a good sense of who is living where. Kenya, another example of a country that kind of could do this, but it's expensive to do, right? It costs a lot of money. You're spending it in perpetuity, but we know a lot about the benefits and the benefits are really great. We know that if you are thinking about poverty eradication, giving cash or something very close to cash to the very poorest people you can find, there's no better bang for your buck in terms of just alleviating some human misery, making sure that children survive to adulthood and grow up healthy in healthy bodies. And you make that money back, right? Like make it back because, because people are, are healthier, um, because they live longer, because they're more capable of working. And we have a lot of microeconomic evidence over that and macroeconomic evidence. And so, you know, I think the, the, the question of cash is sort of, are there investments you could make that would be better than cash? And in some cases there absolutely are. And some cases it's kind of more of a judgment call where, you know, I think that the math can only take you so far and it's really about what people want or what a government or a nonprofit can afford. We know at a household level, when you give cash to really poor people, it just measurably improves their life. This has been proven over and over and over and over again. And that's not to say that there aren't, again, questions about whether that's the best use of money and whether some of it doesn't get misspent. But yeah, you know, in these Kenya studies, yeah. And, you know, the cortisol thing is so interesting to me because being really, really poor, regardless of kind of where you are, it's really stressful. It's stressful to feel poor. It is stressful to be poor relative to the people around you in your culture. So, you know, even a given person who's middle-class in country X, but might be low-income in country Y, right? Like they're still feeling the effects of that poverty and vice versa. As you pointed out, it's the low-hanging fruit. Governments are doing a lot of it already, and they could stand to do even more. What I often think about is like, could the international community, like a World Bank type organization, do a lot more of this financing? And they already do do some. And cash, as opposed to welfare schemes or subsidies, like they are called in India, is always a good yeah. substitute, right? Because I, th I think you, there was one lady in Kenya that you interviewed, and she was asked whether she would like cash or something in kind. And she thought it was a trick question, because what better than cash? Yes. She could decide where to spend that money. Yes. And so, you know, India has a number of subsidy schemes that work well and a number of programs. So the midday meal program that have absolutely proven benefits. And for people who are not familiar, the midday meal program, right, just gives it's pretty simple. It gives lunch to kids, right? right? Correct me. You know this better than I do. So correct me if I'm wrong about any of this. That's not to say that India's many kind of subsidies, allotments, programs for the poor um, to hire them. India has a very large work scheme, for instance, that those things don't work. It's just like a bang for your buck. A lot of cases, in almost all cases, a subsidy would probably be better as cash. 
And it's not to say that the subsidies don't do anything like those gas subsidies, right? Like they do, you know, they do. It's just, would they be somewhat more effective as cash? Would people like them more? Um, but cash is politically difficult, which is something you were gesturing to before. What if uh, party A gives a cash subsidy and party B takes it away? What if registering for the cash subsidy somehow makes you politically at risk? Also, what if there is that sort of sense of like, I can't believe that you're just giving cash out to people. You should be giving them cooking oil and you should be financing education, right? It's for most people, it's not really politically palatable to do cash. And I think that that's really important. That's a very real thing. You know, it's important to take into account. So it's more like we can't trust people who need the cash most to spend the cash wisely. So that is the yeah. kind of uh, assumption on which uh, this is based. And you talked about midday meal program. It worked brilliantly. But Annie, during the pandemic, I met a few families because the schools were shut. The midday meal program was shut altogether. So had that been replaced with a simple cash transfer, and it could have been some other country. This is India because it just happens to be a country that you visited for this program. But that is one impediment where an unprecedented event came in which nobody really yeah. thought of, a subsidy couldn't do enough. And of course, there are, in fact, even in Bollywood movies, the villains of 1970s were the fair price shop owners. Uh, yes. Who <laughs> you, you reported uh, in Jharkhand uh, yes. from, from there where you found that not everyone uh, who was entitled to those uh, two rupee uh, rice got it. The fair price shop owner would find a reason why he could at least have some of it uh, himself. And I think a good 40% of the thing goes to those people who don't deserve it. And 20% go, is out of the system. These these figures are out there and they've been around yes. for a while. I, it really struck me when I was there, just how vast the system is. You have all of these, you know, these shops and these people and these weights and you have to run them and you have to go to the specific one and prove who you are. And, and as you point out, you know, part of the problem with this direct provision, so something like the midday meal program is right, like then it's inflexible, then people can't use the lunch if they're not sitting there and eating the lunch, right. And so that's kind of an argument, um, an argument for cash. India is an outlier in having a lot of complexity around a lot of these provisions that it has for lower income and middle, middle income folks, right? They're often kind of complicated. There's a lot of them and they come with this kind of like heft of administration that the uh, Indian state takes on. Well, Aadhaar, which is the unique biometric identifier, yeah. that has changed things in that at least the bank account is linked to Aadhaar. Yes. It means that, you know, the money gets directly credited there. So you've got what they call a direct benefit transfers, if I remember the acronym DBT. Yep. The money does get credited into the beneficiary's bank accounts, but not everywhere. And also you write about how many people may not even know that they are eligible for a scheme because there are so many of them. So there is something yes. for pregnant women, uh, something for widowed women. And there is one 100-day employment scheme, which was, uh, which is uh, Manrega. Again, you found that it isn't as smooth as it appears to be on paper. In fact, I have seen here close where I live, a kid would dig some soil into that little container, then the mom would come and pick it up. It's not how it was designed to work. And not everybody gets it. And I think you found out there where, you know, people didn't even know that, hey, my name isn't there. It's too much work for me to get the paperwork done. There are some challenges uh, in, in getting these things implemented at all times then. Yeah. And, you know, the use of biometric ID, one thing that I found when I was reporting the book that um, is coming up a lot in my reporting now 
is just that very often there are countries that you might not expect that have really like vaulted over the United States in terms of and some other wealthy countries in terms of having agile systems because they built them from nothing. You know, it's entirely possible that, you know, you could have a system that that uses biometric ID and, you know, is taking people's registrations into account. It's something that's come up a bunch of times that like Rwanda and Bangladesh actually have pretty advanced systems for getting things out to people because they're cell phone based and they were built relatively recently, whereas sometimes countries that are struggling with these old legacy paper systems are like much slower to kind of build on top of them. And one thing I wanted to bring up there is in the United States, the issue is less so that there's so many programs, although there are a lot, but like in India, there's a bunch of states and things get administered by local authorities of which there are thousands and thousands and thousands. And the administration is really different depending on where you are. The rules are different depending on what state you are in. You have to like switch programs if you you go from state to state. So complexity shows up in a lot of different ways, and it's very country-specific and place-specific. Some countries have much more centralized schemes. There's sort of a central office that you can go to and kind of ask what is available to you, and other countries don't. Do you think it's too populist even for the best or worst of the politicians to consider such a program as universal basic income? Because if the cash were to go directly to the beneficiaries, then what about the middlemen who at the moment, can have some of it. Do you know there is a joke, a a, a very, very famous joke uh, here is that there was an Indian politician who met an American one at American politician's house and said, hey, you've got a mansion. How did you do this? He said, hey, look, I built a big bridge and then, you know, I got some money off it and I did this. So then later the American bloke went to the Indian politician's home and he said, man, Uh you've got a bigger house, a bigger mansion than mine. How did you manage that? He said, come on, let's look at outside the window. He looked outside and said, there's nothing there. He said, exactly. So because, you know, the the whole idea that uh, you could fleece through the funds that are dedicated to a particular cause, if if that directly goes to the bank account, is it then not in the interest of the politicians to do this, even if design can permit you to? Yeah, I mean, it's this. there's this big debate in the United States right now about the IRS, which is the tax authority, uh, has all of your data and you still need to like derive your own taxes and pay them and you get all these penalties if you do it wrong, but it's really complicated. And um, there's no reason that most people couldn't just have the IRS send you a note, say this is what you owe or this is how much you're getting back and like be done with it, right? But there's these tax prep companies that literally lobby in Washington to keep the system as it is because then, you know, they get to take their little cut. Yeah, there's all these middlemen here, right? Like there's all these legal aid societies and nonprofits to help. And again, in every country, there's like this version of it, right? And yeah, this stuff gets really entrenched. And I think that, you know, one thing that I found in reporting the book was that a lot of charities, a lot of nonprofits, like are full of do-gooders. It's like make work for the people who are working there, right? Like they're doing it the way that they want to do it because they enjoy it that way. And like, is that what is technically best? No, like, no, but you know, they run the nonprofit. So that's how they do it. <laughs> then in, in that uh, count, should Iran deserve a big pat on its back? Because I think in, was it in 2010, When the government said, hey, we'll not give you subsidies, no oil, no food. Instead, we just transfer some money in your bank accounts. And that apparently was some 29% of the median income, which also offset inflation. Could you explain how it worked there? It has indeed reduced inequality and and poverty and folks ended up working more than they would have otherwise. 
it was this oil dividend. And I think it's not ongoing still. I think it happened and it ended. You know, they just distributed the cash. So yeah, governments can absolutely do this. In Alaska, um, which is also kind of an oil state in the US, they give a dividend back to Alaska residents who meet a small set of criteria. So this kind of thing happens. Any program that just gives cash or gives something very close to cash and gives it out really simply, it's just amazing. Every time anybody does it, it works really well, right? So here um, we had this kind of temporary expansion of a child tax credit that happened during the pandemic. That's now gone, but that worked pretty well. It's been tried in a lot of different contexts. It works pretty well when nonprofits do it. It works pretty well when governments do it. It works pretty well when it's a dividend system. It works pretty well when it's kind of like a social security payment. You know, like, again, it's not to say that this is, if they, this can't be the only thing that a government does and it cannot replace everything. And there's all kinds of reasons that you need other things. But like, I'm amazed by the number of different contexts in which this kind of just works. Yeah, in fact, during the pandemic, uh, some 1.1 billion people across the world received cash payments. And the World Bank uh, estimated that about a third of all social projects was funded by cash, or rather it was cash and not any anything by... Uh, and this was the first time since 1945, especially in Europe after the World War II, was Europe's debt to GDP ratio so high because that's how they were... You know, it, it has an impact uh, there as well. But uh, during the pandemic, it seemed like it was an idea whose time had come. But now that the pandemic is a thing of the past, I think everybody has now gotten back to their usual, the pre-pandemic norms, I suspect. Yeah, I think that that might be right. I just, you know, versus 10 years ago, kind of when I started thinking about writing the book, like so much has changed and there's so much more emphasis on this. It's really remarkable to me how, you know, even if we're not living in a world of UBIs, we're very much living in a world of cash transfers and cash is one. I think that the pandemic is a perfect example of the way that this is now just kind of how things get done and that that's a really powerful, powerful, good thing. <laughs> but do you think is cash unsexy for or doesn't have enough marketing behind it? See, I think 94%, I read this in your book, of all aid is non-cash. Donors are more likely to donate for a cause. Yeah. So if there is a cleft lip surgery for a kid or an education of a, a girl child or malaria to eradicate. As a donor, I would want to know that which cause it is going going to. And maybe there is a photoshopped image somewhere of a well-meaning NGO, but that's what sells. And, and just giving away cash probably doesn't. Is that one reason as well? It's kind of unsexy. And so, you know, I think the circumstances in which you see it. So um, one place in which cash is really effective is refugee relief. So when people are fleeing a place because of violence, because of something having to do with climate or, you know, fires, earthquakes, whatever it is, it's really, really effective to give cash. Notably, a few of the things that you mentioned there are things that actually probably do work better than cash, like have a bigger bang for the buck. So some of the public health interventions, I think that there's like a real argument for spending money on that versus cash. Um, the school stuff, it's harder. People, for instance, really, really love financing school buildings. So they'll think we're going to build a school in Community X. But like the school doesn't do anything unless you have teachers and unless the people want to send their kids there. And we've seen over and over again that those kind of infrastructural things don't actually work that well. So I think you're totally right. I think the conversation about it has changed a lot. But I think that the there's still that skepticism. People still want to see something with their name on it. And I think that there's still that kind of that feeling of like, well, we know better and this is what we're doing and this is how we're doing it. 
The easiest case is if you are giving an in-kind benefit that isn't proven to be really effective, so like bed nets, anti-malarial bed nets is a good argument, then you should probably just be doing cash at the small scale. And I think that the questions get harder and harder as you go up to the big scale. But yeah, cash does not solve all problems. And cash should not be the only thing that a place or a government needs. The question is, do you want this kind of sub-layer of support for folks? Um, I think there's really compelling reasons to have it. To illustrate that, uh, you had a chance to speak with Arvind Subramanian, who was uh, the yeah. government's chief, uh, chief economic uh, advisor between 2014 and 18. And I think he, he talks about that himself, doesn't he? That if India could offer 7,620 rupees per family, every year, then it would reduce. And that poverty rate is quite stark, like from 22% to less than 1%. And you just need to recycle some of the existing schemes instead of digging in or, or you know, having a completely new budget for it, because that will be prohibitively expensive. But that is something that is not undoable, uh, if there is a yes. word like that. Absolutely. And I think that India is a really interesting case where you have a lot of very low income people, a lot of deeply poor places, but India has a lot of very rich people, right? Like it's hugely industrialized. It's a very, very large government. Um, and I think it's important there to remember that one way to um, make sure that you are getting money to the people who need it, not the people who don't, is through the tax system, right? So you can always tax it back. And so I think it always makes sense when you're thinking about transfers to also be talking about taxes. But yeah, yeah, India, I think, is like a very interesting case where you do have a lot of like subsistence level poverty still, but you have one of these big, powerful governments, you have a pretty big tax base, you have lots and lots of wealthy companies and people to tax. So I think it probably suggests itself as one of the countries where it might work the best. Every book has one big moment or what the kind of a moment is, is that the amount of money that it would take to lift every man, woman, and child across the World Bank's extreme poverty line is about 66 billion is what you write according to the Brookings Institution, or that is equivalent of what Americans spend on lottery tickets. And that number, it, um, it drives me crazy because it should be zero, right? Like there should be zero people in extreme poverty. We have every penny that we need 50 times over to do it. And we know how to do it. And we know who these people are. And it's worth noting that, you know, now people living in extreme poverty tend to be concentrated in a few places, countries affected by war. Uh, Afghanistan, Syria is one. Um, there's a number of very poor countries. So the state itself is just really poor. Um, and there you're going to need some kind of external financing to come in. And then, you know, the numbers are dropping, but you still have pockets of very poor people in countries with more state capacity and more income. India is one of them. And so, you know, we know how to get to all, all three of those groups this would mean, again, more kids surviving to adulthood, better health outcomes for a person's entire life. And really, you know, I know that you've seen it and I've seen it too, and I feel very lucky to not live in it. This kind of $1.25 a day poverty is absolutely miserable. It's dangerous. There's really no reason at this point in planetary history that we need to be doing this anymore. And, and I think that cash transfers are probably one of the easiest ways to get everybody in that state out. <laughs> also, America, we've talked about India and Kenya, but the US yes. now all the way in a different continent here, when I sit, when we read about America, it's always about, it, it's the most powerful country in the world in, in that sense. Yes. But the poverty is quite, you know, stark. There are 40 million people 
or that's 12% of the country lives in poverty. Some 18.5 million, according to a recent economist, uh, I mean, a, a special report in The Economist, they live in deep poverty is what I read. More than 1 million households, you write, with children subsist on less than $2 a person a day. There was one research that was done in 2019 by the National Academics of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, some 600 page report, which I haven't read, but only one line, which says that child poverty costs America between 800 billion to 1.1 trillion dollars uh, due to, you know, either because of poor health or earnings lost or because these kids could grow up to be criminals or, you know, they go into petty crime and the like. And that loss itself could be a big enough reason why one should invest or think about investing in a UBI. Uh, would that be right? Or is it too simplistic an argument that uh, I'm trying to, you know, put put forth? No, I don't think it's too simplistic. So the US, so these numbers have gotten better recently and they've gotten better recently in part because of some economic changes, but more importantly, because of some government policies. And so we had briefly this large child allowance that was going out to about 80% of families with children. And it didn't hit everybody, but it got most people. It was pretty broad and it was basically a basic info UBI for kids. And this is a great idea. It's a great idea for eliminating child poverty because the U.S. still has some really concentrated poverty. It's especially acute among Black and Indigenous families and especially in Southern communities, so states like Louisiana and Mississippi. The U.S., I think it's always important to note that the U.S. does a lot of in-kind benefits that aren't cash, that don't always show up in these calculations, so things like food stamps. But yeah, no country has the resources like it. No country has a middle class that even with all the inequality we have is as high income and able to consume as much as the American middle class is. One thing I think people underrate a little bit is just how much richer the U.S. is than Europe. And Europe's pretty rich, maybe not like a Norway, but like a France or a U.K. And even so, we still have really high poverty because we really tolerate it. And I think that it's especially dire among children. Um, and again, there's no reason for it. We have a very ready policy solution. It would have all the downstream benefits that you, you point to. It's something that has gotten better. And I feel like now we 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 solved it once and we could only just do it again and, and get that that child allowance back, um, which, you know, a lot of Democrats are trying really hard, but we'll see. <laughs> One more thing that how to count the poor. India also yeah. struggles with it. Who exactly is poor? Yeah. The, the definition can be simple that, hey, this is the the definition itself is so varying. I think it is Britain. In Britain, they say that if you are earning less than 60 percent of the median income, then you are below the poverty line. In the US, it's, it's something else altogether. Yeah, it's a place where I think that researchers, they like they have a lot of metrics, right? And countries determine this in their own way. So there's like consumption measures of poverty, right? So are you able to sort of consume enough or purchase enough to give you kind of like a standard a standard living? That's a place where, you know, increasingly things like cell phones, I think, are not really luxuries. They're necessities for everybody in every country in the world, which is really amazing. But, you know, having electricity, um, having access to meaningful health care, being able to enroll your kids in school, these are all a little bit more qualitative um, versus kind of more blunt measures, which are, you know, $1.25 a day or $2 a day now. And those are sometimes based on cash, like how much cash do you have to spend in a given day, even if you're being given food or food stamps or something like that. And the World Bank's measures are often um, consumption-based because it's just easier to measure that way. There's no uni unified standard, but I think that that's actually a good thing because on the one hand, poverty is just like not having enough money, right? I think that that is the simplest and truest definition. 
But then I also think it's about social exclusion and about not being able to participate meaningfully in the economic and social and cultural life of the place that you're living. Uh, material deprivation is part of that, but not the only part of it. Hmm. And how do you, as a journalist, last couple of questions, Annie, how do you, it's a person who's interviewing these folks and uh, some of the stories are quite harrowing, whether an American telling you that she has to show that she's disabled first to be able to get some relief because otherwise uh, there, there are some conflicting uh, laws that will not allow her to get that uh, particular subsidy or in Kenya where you write it is rude to eat in the open in a village because then that will be considered as the family has more food than others. These are quite personal stories that you've encountered? Does your blood boil? Do you keep yourself detached? Some of the silliness of the governments or sometimes common sense doesn't rule. Some people have to suffer more than others. Yeah. I especially love reporting in other places where I think I always try to be really careful not to feel like I'm sort of parachuting into somebody's life and making kind of grand pronouncements about how things should be in a place or politics are really complicated to understand even when you know them really well. And so I always try to be quite humble about that. The flip side of that, I think, is that I am amazed by how open people will be about their lives. You know, one of the questions I often asked people while I was reporting the book was what the most expensive thing they owned was. And people were constantly like, oh, well, you know, very, very often it was like, here's this cow or this sheep. And this is like the most precious thing that we have or this bicycle, this motorbike. Um, but then, you know, people would pull out their jewelry or, you know, whatever. And sometimes it was just like, here, this, this fridge is the most important thing that we own in this village or whatever it would be. It is, yeah, sometimes it feels hard. I've done some reporting with like refugee populations and that kind of thing. And it's really tough. Reporting on deep poverty is really hard. It is, I think, coming from an American context, I think we have no idea how lucky we are to be Americans, even to be poor Americans. Deep poverty in other countries is like a whole other you know, really deep poverty is really tough. Yeah, that's hard. But, you know, overwhelmingly, I just like, I feel so privileged to be able to do the work that I do. And I feel so grateful when people are so open about their lives and share. I feel like a fundamental sort of tenet of my reporting is that people are experts on their own experience. And so to sit with an expert on their own experience and hear how life is for them is like the most fun thing for me. And have you seen some countries do better than others? Would it be Scandinavian nations where, you know, it's easier relatively to roll out certain schemes like these where you don't have the poverty that you've written about and watched? I mean, it's like the Scandinavians are like some of those Northern, Northern European, they're amazing. Like they're really amazing. They have amazing government systems. Mm -hmm. They do amazing technical things, that kind of thing, but they're weird countries, right? They're small. They are racially homogenous. They're very high income. So it's, you know, the U.S. is now 350 million people. India is what, 1.4 billion, something like that. Whereas some of these countries like Estonia or Finland, it's a couple million. Yeah. There's just not that many people there. That's not even a big city in India. That's a small city, right? Or, like or, or, um, or 10, 10, foot, uh, 10 cricket stadiums. That's it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, in the U.S., right, it's like the state of Vermont, like one of the little ones. Vermont is tiny and very beautiful. Their political systems are really, they tend to be more parliamentary. So you tend to get coalitions of parties that work across. Whereas the big multi-ethnic, multiracial, big countries are hard to manage. And it means that it's a lot harder to get kind of buy-in. 
political buy-in across different financial groups and uh, income groups, racial groups. And so, yeah, it's tough. There's a lot to learn from the the Nordics or the Northern European countries, but you're not going to replicate that. Diversity. I mean, if there are too, too many diverse yeah. groups, so that's it's, it's that much more exactly. difficult. Yeah. And, and the last one, do you think your book has achieved what it set out it was it has been a wild success you know i think it was already happening before i wrote the book and it's been really gratifying to see the change continue since i'm really happy to see even if it's not like a basic income but more cash like poverty eradication efforts and for me it was always just like i just need to finish the book can think nothing about reception i'm just like oh gosh i desperately have to finish this project but i was pretty happy with it so yeah they're tougher they're long and fun and tough books, but they're fun to write. Did you, uh, in, in any of your interviews, anytime take on a politician and call their, uh, you know, bullshit on this subject as such? You, you... <laughs> oh my gosh, I did so many like debates right when yeah. the book came out. Right. And it's funny because like when you finished a book, you kind of have been working on it for a couple of years. You feel like you've thought every thought that you'll ever have. Mm-hmm. And then it's not that I didn't Think that I could learn something from other folks, but it was just, oh my gosh, I've been thinking about this for half a decade now. Like, isn't there any other new <laughs> argument out in the sun? That was always how I felt about it. <laughs> Excellent. And I think you've written something about uh, uh, your beef against authority. I'm not sure if you remember that. And I'm, I'm going to quote a sentence, authority meaning, let's say politician, f- political figures or yeah. bosses. Or, uh, you wrote, I had a mild problem with authority and a real problem with truancy. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it, it was uh, in uh, the Howard Crimson. I'll just share my screen here. Uh, it is. Oh my goodness. This is back in 2007, I think. You, 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 oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> there are some that fun stories great. there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> from, from, from a different era. Thank you so much, Annie, for your time on this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It was really, and I should note that you did a tremendous amount of work to make the book happen, to do reporting. And I couldn't have asked for a better um, colleague and guide for for the India portion of the book. And so it's really nice to see you and talk to you again. And it was not a book that I wrote by myself and you know your contributions were astonishing. So I really appreciate it. That's very kind of you, Annie, because I, for, for listeners, uh, I have to let this out to you that I don't know if, if you, even if you remember this, we traveled 24 hours to get to Ahmedabad, which was our, the airport. Yeah. And then that was where we met. Yeah. that's where we met and then 16 hours of reporting in, in, in some rural places in Gujarat. Then you went back to the hotel the next morning. Yeah. It, it began all over again. And there was one, uh, one embarrassing moment that I will remember. This was in Jharkhand, where embarrassing because it was on me. I was sitting, staring in the oblivion somewhere, and you came up to me and you asked me, "Hey, do you need something? Are you are you doing all right? I've got a pill for everything." I said, "No, no, no I'm all right. Let's get on with it." <laughs> because it was the fourth day of of reporting, so more power to you. Yeah, when, when medically, you- medically, yes. No, I had like every 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 medicine known to man carried with me. Yeah, it was so fun. It was so fun, and we really did. I mean, we we literally like crossed India. Almost like we couldn't have, you know, it was two very different parts of the country, which was really, really cool to see. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. 